Amen. Kids through fourth grade are dismissed their classes. In the words of that last song, tie in so nicely to what we remember around the communion table, who our Jesus is, not just the Messiah, name above all names, our blessed Redeemer, rescue for sinners, a ransom to pay the price that we could not pay to be redeemed by our God. What a reassurance the communion table brings to us, right? As we, as we ponder, as we consider who Jesus is. And we do, in fact, pray that every one of you, as Tim talked about, knows Jesus in this way, that you've placed your faith in Jesus in this way. And if you haven't, may today be the day where you make that decision to do that. We'd love to talk to you about that. So catch him, catch me, anybody else after the service. Let's pray as we open God's word. God, we've been in your word in one sense already this morning as we've sung these songs that so many cases are the scripture sung back to you or looked at the communion table, which is from the scripture. And now we, we turn to this passage in Acts and ask over this next 35 or 40 minutes, as I speak, God, I, I pray that it wouldn't be me speaking, that you'd use the words that come out of my mouth to communicate what you want. And I pray that you would use your power through your spirit and hearts to apply that to us. So at the end of the day, as we go from this place to do the work that you've called us to do, it's, it's you who's doing it. It's you who's providing the fuel to do it. It's you who's providing uh, the motivation, the exhortation, and you're the focus of that work. So God, as, as you equip us through your word, do it ultimately for your glory, that your name would be made known. That name we just sang about, Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in Acts 7, or the end of Acts 7 this morning. Before we get there, especially for anybody who's new or jumping in here in the last couple weeks, we've been going through the book of Acts since a little after the beginning of the year. And so I want to just catch this up a little bit, because for one, if you are observant of such things, the graphic has changed, and we were focused in on the city of Jerusalem, and now we've got this, this wider view of the region around Jerusalem, and there's a purpose behind that. In the beginning of Acts, Jesus gives his commission before he ascends into heaven. He gives his commission to his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then, this is a quiz. No, I'm just kidding. It's not a quiz. But, but it can be interactive. And then in, in, in Judea, Samaria, thank you. And then the rest of the world, the ends of the earth. And we've been, if you've been paying attention, staying in Jerusalem, haven't we? Up to this point, while there's been people who've come from out, outskirts, they've, they've come to the city, it's all been happening in Jerusalem. And the, the church, as it's been growing, it's been happening in Jerusalem as people are coming to Jesus. 
And now, at this point in Acts, we are turning a pivot. We're, 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 we're turning our focus. Jerusalem is still, things are still happening there, but now we're looking beyond that. And we're going to see that in, in the passage today, and it's going to prepare us for what's to come in the weeks ahead. So that's a little big picture background, a little more zoomed in. The last couple weeks, we've been looking at a guy named Stephen. In Acts 6, the apostles got together and said, we're, we're called, our primary ministry is the word of God and, and prayer. We're to be focused on these things. So we need to seek out some men who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this work among us of, of serving in the body, meeting some of the practical, tangible needs in the church community. And they, they, they assigned seven men, full of the Holy Spirit, we're told, to do this work. One of them is Stephen. And we're introduced to him in Acts 6. And, and in Acts 7, which Pastor Rob opened for us last week, we see Stephen giving a defense before the Sanhedrin. They'd been accusing him, bringing these false accusations against him. Accusations of, of blasphemy, in a sense, that he had blasphemed the temple and the law. And he was giving his defense before them, and it comes up to the very end of what he has to say, and, uh, and poor Rob, I saw you back there, he didn't get to actually tell you the end of the story. So that's what we get to look at together this morning. And I wanted to give you that background because we just jump right in. It's as Stephen's words trail off, and we're going to pick up right here in Acts 7. And I'm going to read through uh, chapter 8, verse 8, because that's the entirety of the passage we're looking at together this morning. So Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, that is what Stephen had just got done saying, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, there's a lot happening in this passage. And we see that because it's a narrative. We're starting by looking at Stephen's final moments. And then we're going to expand our view to see how that affected the believing community around him. And we're going to see the fruit that came out of that, the beginnings of the fruit that came out of what happened in the community of believers at that time. The martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that ensued served to further the commission 
that Jesus had given his, his followers to take the gospel first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Here we see progress as seeds start to be planted and to spring up outside of Jerusalem. And so, as we look at that, in the context of Stephen's martyrdom, we can agree with what Tertullian said about a century later when he said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's the very thing that we see playing out right before our eyes in this passage. And so we're going to explore that. And as we do, we're going to see that as Jesus' followers experience persecution, the church expands its reach. As Jesus' followers experience persecution, the church expands its reach. That might seem backwards to some of us. Because often we think of persecution as, as oppression, as holding something down. And yet what we see not only here but throughout history is that when the church is persecuted, things actually spring out from that. We see growth. We see new life. And we're going to see that in this text this morning. The first thing that takes place in order for all that to happen is a death. Death as Stephen is martyred. Martyred, being put to death for what he believes, specifically his religious beliefs, as the term would be used. So if you're an outline person, this is a little aside for those people who like outlines, and for the rest of you, whatever. Um, but, but there's actually just two points to this sermon, and they each have a couple segments to them, because there's such a cool parallel. And you're going to see that as we go, because we look at, at Stephen his death, and what that leads to. And then we see the parallel as it happens in the community of believers. So that's the second point we're going to get to in a little while. And what happens under the persecution and the new life that springs from that. So here we are, entering the scene as the Sanhedrin is responding to what Stephen had just said. Everything that he had just explained to them. And they do it in a way that seems as though they're interrupting him. It's immediate. They just jump in, and it seems as though they're interrupting him because it doesn't seem like Stephen finished what he had to say. Stephen had, had articulated this, this story of how God had been, had been working in the people of Israel throughout history. Specifically, because of their accusations, he's, he's explaining, look, I'm not blaspheming the temple and not blaspheming the law. He holds a very high view of the temple and the law, but his point is that the presence of God can't be confined to the temple. The presence of God can't be controlled, as Rob showed last week. It's that you can't put him in a box. You've put him in a box. And that's where he, he turned and he said, You, you are you're hard hearted, you're stiff necked people. And at that point, they didn't want to hear anything else that he had to say. Go figure. They'd heard enough. But I think where Stephen would have gone next, as we see happen throughout the New Testament, is he would have said, but look, we have a gracious God. A God who's, who's quick to forgive if you would turn to him. He would have called them to repentance, wouldn't he? I believe that Stephen, that was his, his, his desire in all this was that these men would have their eyes open to who Jesus really was. That they would come to know him as the Messiah. And that's probably where he would have gone next and said, turn to Jesus, repent. 
It's not too late. Repent of your hard-heartedness. But he never got those words out because they'd heard enough in, in what he'd brought to them. And their anger, the sting of those words, led them to their immediate reaction. And, and as I thought about that right there from the outset, I wonder about us and how we respond when we, when we feel as though what we have to say is being called into question. When, we, when we're presented with something that's a different way of thinking about things than, than we're used to, or a different perspective, how quick are we to have ears to hear, to be receptive, even if, even if we don't agree to hear? Or are we crashing in as the Sanhedrin is here, unwilling to hear, unwilling to even entertain the thought. See, this is evidence of hard-heartedness. And if, if we see that in us, this may be the most important part in the whole, the whole text. If I see this in myself, the, the place I need to be is, God, I realize that based on my responses in situations like this, I, I'm developing a hard heart. God, soften my heart. Because it's not something that you and I can, can work up. We can't, we can't soften our own hearts as we start to become hard-hearted, as we start to become stuck in certain things, as we become cynical about other things. God will do that work. We have to be willing to let him. And so for some of us, that may be where we need to, to spend some time this morning and going forward from here. God, I see a hard heart building up in me, and I don't want that. Soften my heart. Open my heart to what you would have for me, the ways in which you would continue to reveal your truth to me in deeper and greater ways. Sanhedrin was not willing to do that. They evidenced that based on how they respond here. M meanwhile, Stephen's unfazed, it seems, by their response. It's as though, hey, he's just going to keep on going. And I believe that's the case because of this, this depth of relationship that he knows with his God. Back in Acts 6, when these men were selected to fill the role uh, as serving in the church, it said men who are full of the Spirit. They have a, they have a communion with God. They, they, ha they know God personally, walking with him, full of the Spirit, Twice in Acts 6, we're told that Stephen was one of those, full of the Spirit. And then in, in verse 8, it says that he was full of power, which, as it displayed itself through these works, could only have been a, a, a product of the Spirit's work. Stephen was a man who consistently showed himself to be under the, the, the Spirit's power and grip as he served. And so, it, it's just another example. As we've gone through Acts, and you see at the top of that page in the outline, these are the people who... God consistently uses to make an impact for his kingdom. The people who, are, who, who have come to understand that God's power for the church to fulfill its mission and sustain it amidst persecution is the Holy Spirit who must be sought earnestly through prayer. It's, it's clear that Stephen was a man who had applied himself to those truths, to living in light of that. And that's why as he approached his death right here, he experienced this, this sense of peace. 
He was a man who was simply continuing his journey with his God. And that's how that happens. People don't, don't come to death all of a sudden with this overwhelming uh, feeling of the presence of God and a keen awareness of his power if it's been absent from their lives all along. But for those who've walked with him, who've journeyed with him, as Stephen had, it's, it's a sense of peace. It's a sense of, of presence that's indescribable outside of this power of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 7, 55, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He gazed. I love that word. It's like all this is happening, and to gaze into heaven. It's oblivious, it seems, right, to what's going on around him because he's so focused on what? On what God's revealing to him. See, the, the heavens parted, right? And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And we can believe his testimony. We can believe that what he saw is true, is real, because what he saw is what the Son of Man had said would be. This is what's so cool about this passage right here. Because Jesus, if you recall, had been on trial, hadn't he? He'd been on trial before the Sanhedrin. False accusations. They brought him in. A mock trial. And as he's standing there, they say, are you the Messiah? In Mark 14, 62, his response is, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. So what does Stephen see? He sees the Son of Man at the right hand of power as the clouds of heaven have parted. Just as Jesus had said it would be. Now, when Jesus said that, the high priest tore his robes and he said, that's blasphemy. Put him to death. So when Stephen agreed with what Jesus had said, how did the, the Sanhedrin respond to that? Same way. Stephen knew that. Stephen knew what his, his master, his savior had walked before him. He knew what he was setting himself up for. There was, I imagine, still a, a glimmer of hope that in, in explaining this and in, in articulating this, their hearts would be gripped by it. But he also knew where they were. He knew the risk. And indeed, in saying that, it, it sealed his, his death warrant, as it would seem. Um, before we get to that little section, it's, it's interesting there's a little nuance to what Stephen saw and what Jesus had said would be. Jesus said, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Um, a reference we see from Psalm 110, verse 1. And we see it throughout the New Testament as a way to explain that Jesus had finished his work. We talked about the communion table and how Jesus has come to be our, our atoning sacrifice. The one who's paid the debt for our sin. He lived a perfect life for us because we couldn't do it. He died and, and took the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. He was buried and he rose, showing his, his victory over death in the grave. And he ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. That shows that Jesus has finished 
the work. There's nothing left to be done to gain our salvation. It's finished. And yet here, Stephen sees him standing. And, and the significance of that, it, it's subtle, but it's important. And some have suggested that perhaps Jesus is standing, in a sense, arms open to welcome his, his faithful servant. You've, you've served well, you've finished the race, and I'm receiving you into my presence. And there's an element that, of that that could be true. There's another element of it that we see, I think, if we look at, at, at a prophecy from Daniel and, and look, consider the role that Jesus filled. In Daniel 7, written uh, several centuries before Jesus walked the earth, a, a prophecy, 7 verse 13 and 14, he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a picture of, of, the, of the rightful ruler of all creation, right? The king exercising dominion over all that's under him, which in this case is, is everything. That's Jesus. Standing as, as king, standing as the one who exercises authority and dominion, the judge. It's rightfully his. And here, the parallel, as we look at, at Jesus as, as judge and as ruler, is that in, in, in these times when a judge would, would come with a verdict in a trial, the judge would stand. You know, the, the, the judge is ready to give his verdict. He stood so here's the judge of all the universe standing to announce the verdict. What Stephen has said is true. He's innocent of the charges brought by the Sanhedrin. Those are false accusations. He stand, Jesus stands in a sense to affirm that, that what Stephen has said is true. And as judge... There's another side of this. He stands in judgment over those who reject that testimony. That's the sobering piece of this because Jesus does stand as judge. And for those who reject the testimony, there is judgment. There's no escaping that reality. But there is rescue from that reality, and that's what Stephen is hoping for that these hard-hearted people will turn before it's too late, before they receive the judgment they deserve, and they will receive the grace that's available to them. He has received it. Stephen has. And he's going to be stepping into the presence of the one who's earned that righteous, glorious victory for him. And I imagine that as he saw Jesus stand that, that sense of assurance, that sense of hope and confidence prepared him for what was to come. And, and the Sanhedrin is ready to respond as well. Those, those claims, again, that, that line up with what Jesus had said, blasphemy. So you see, their response is immediate and it's unanimous. They, with one voice, it says, they, they cried out, and they plugged their ears because they didn't want to hear any more of the blasphemy as they saw it. Ever your kids ever like not want to hear what you want to say? And they go, la, 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 la. 
A few parents laughed. The rest of you are like, what is he doing? Right? So they're tuning you out. You can't, if you, we're not going to do that. I could have you all do it right now, and you, you wouldn't be able to hear anything around you because it's really effective. If you plug your ears and make noise, you can't hear anything. They didn't want to hear blasphemy because it would defile them further, right? They thought this was blasphemous, so they had a great strategy to deal with that. They became childish, and then they dragged Stephen out of the city to stone him. They couldn't handle what Jesus had said so they brought false accusations, they accused him of blasphemy, they took him out of the city and put him to death, a criminal's death. They couldn't stand what Stephen had to say, they brought these false accusations, accused him of blasphemy, they dragged him out of the city, and they put him to death. And this was not the sentence that was brought because of the due process of a trial. This was a mob lynching. They got mad, and they took it out on him. They dragged him out, they put him to death. And as they're stoning him to death, we see the second part of this point, and that's that, that Stephen's death leads to new life. Death leads to new life. No doubt because the reality, again, that Stephen's full of the Spirit's power, he's assured of his eternal hope, he's able to face this, this end with no regrets. And once more, he, res- he models his response in the face of death, in the same way that his Savior had. From the cross, Jesus had, had said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he looked out at those who were killing him, and he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, a subtle difference, but he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said it to Jesus, which is just one more, one more evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, right? Jesus is at the Father's right hand. Jesus is on par with God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So to commit his spirit to Jesus is the same as committing his spirit to the Father as Jesus had done. And, and then he says, turn the page, uh, do not hold this sin against them. The embodiment of forgiveness, Right? As Stephen is dying at the hands of these people, he's saying, God, there's still forgiveness. Help them to see it. Don't let it be too late. Don't hold this sin against them. Soften their hearts. Help them to see. This is, this is incredible as I think about it because if I was in the shoes of Stephen, I would imagine that one of my responses would be, I sure hope they get what's coming to them. And I pray that I would be to the point where that wouldn't be my response. But I'm also being honest, and I think a lot of us would honestly say the same thing. We see it happening in the world and say, God, give those people what they deserve. And what we do when we say that is we expose, and I do this, we expose a very shallow understanding of the gospel. We expose a shallow understanding of the fact that what we have received is entirely, entirely of grace, completely undeserved. And if we were to get what we deserved, we sure wouldn't be wishing it on anyone else. 
As we've been looking at the persecuted church the last few months, if you've been with us, spending more time looking at what's going on around the world, what our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing on a daily basis, I don't know about you, but one of the things that stood out to me is the way that so many of them say, pray, pray for those who persecute us. I mean, pray for us, but, but pray for those who persecute us. Pray that they would come to know Jesus. Like, I mean, like pray that they get fall into a massive chasm as they're driving down the road to our church to, to get us. You know, I don't know. Pray something would happen to them so they can't. Pers- no, pray that they would come to know Jesus. They understand the gospel. They understand the grace that God has made available to every one of us, a sinner, undeserving of it. They believe it, and they pray accordingly. They're doing the same thing that Stephen was doing. Stephen understood. So Stephen could could face those who were killing him and say, God, don't hold this against them. Bring them to an understanding of your truth, an understanding of who Jesus really is. And with that, we're told, Stephen breathes his last and is immediately ushered in the presence of the one who stood in his defense. Luke uses a common New Testament euphemism here. When he says that Stephen fell asleep, Luke didn't misunderstand what happened. This was a a pretty fitting phrase, actually, because isn't that what death is for the believer? We commonly see death as the end of something, don't we? And sleep, sleep means you're going to wake to see another day. And that's the hope, isn't it? In this case, the believer wakes to an entirely new eternal reality. And one that's, that's far more glorious, far more magnificent than even the most creative mind could imagine. So that's what Stephen experiences. Death leads to new life. And that's not the end of the narrative. So as we turn the page, and in this case, turn to the next chapter of Acts, we're going to see how that event catalyzed, first of all, the persecution that went all over the place, and then a massive growth, in, uh, an expansive growth in the church as people came to know Jesus. And as those who knew him took the message into the world. The first thing, the first part of that point is this picture of death as the followers of Jesus are scattered. It would seem that the movement is going to be dying down. They've been scattered. That's what it would seem. Luke had mentioned Saul back in the the closing verses of Acts 7. He was standing watch over the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. And here we see him giving approval to the execution of of Stephen in the beginning of chapter 8. And then immediately, it says, there arose on that day at the hand of Saul this persecution against the church. We're not given a lot of details. Uh, This happened in Jerusalem. We know from what Luke's told us that there are several thousand believers, at least in Jerusalem up to this point, because of the numbers that have been added to the church daily. And so all these people, we're just told, Paul, Saul, not Paul, not yet, we'll get there down the road. Um, Saul is, is dragging people, not discriminating, men, women, any of them, throwing them in prison. Ultimately, the, the, the design is that they're going to face the same fate that Stephen did. going to squash this movement before it goes any further. 
The only ones who are untouched are the apostles, and I imagine that part of the reason for that is they, they're highly respected in the community. We see that throughout Acts. Not just, not just the believers, but the people in the community around them really looked up to them, respected them, even if they didn't want to get too close to the movement itself. So perhaps that's why they kept their hands off them, but, but the rest were fair game. And just like that, Saul's persecution scatters them, we're told. And that's a really interesting phrase that Luke uses. The word is diasporason, which dispersion, right? So the Jews had been dispersed when they'd gone into exile. They'd been scattered all over the place. Here, the same thing happens to the followers of Jesus. That word, it means that they're scattered like seed. So old-fashioned farming methods, you know, they'd take the seed and they'd scatter it in the field. And it would there in the field begin to do what seeds do once they get planted in the ground, germinate and grow. And I was thinking about this because even farmers today don't farm like that. They have different ways of doing it. So does this illustration really resonate? And uh, another way I was thinking about this was, so it's, it's springtime, I'm getting ready to treat my yard, and I've got a broadcast spreader that I'm going to dump a bunch of fertilizer in, and I'm going to take it out, and it's going to spread that fertilizer all over the yard. Or perhaps, we don't want to talk about winter too much, but it's, it's been around long enough. But if you take salt to melt the ice in your driveway, you put it in a broadcast spreader, and you push it, and it sends that salt flying everywhere, right? If you were to keep all that salt or all that fertilizer together in one place, you dump that whole bag of salt on your driveway in one spot, or you dump all that fertilizer in your yard in one spot, what's it going to do? It's going to corrode your driveway. It's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy your grass, right? You're going to have this big charred like hole, in the, not quite, but uh, on the ground where that fertilizer had been dumped. That's not the purpose. You put it in the spreader, though, and you take it out, and that thing just flings it everywhere, doesn't it? And there's no really sense in which you're going to ever recollect that. But once it's out there, it can start to do what it's supposed to do, can't it? Doing it the way it's designed to do. That's what Luke says happened to the church. They were like this in Jerusalem, and God said enough. So he brought some persecution, and And now they're out doing what they were commissioned to do. So we, as the believing community, need, we need to be spread all over the place to do the most effective work for the gospel that we can do. And that's not the only comparison to seed that I think is important. Is we think about seed and the work that it does. Okay, so fertilizer isn't seed. I get that. that the illustration, every illustration falls short somewhere. But Jesus said something about seed in John 12. As, as he's nearing the end of his earthly life, he's responding to a question about, from some who were seeking him. And he said in John 12, verses 23 and 24, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And some have argued, has been looking at that, that that Jesus misunderstood how seeds work. Like, if a seed was literally biologically dead, then it's not going to grow. Okay, get that. Jesus is making a point, isn't he? Jesus is saying something about the potential for life 
that's in a seed. Because if you were all to do this and imagine that you have a seed right there, you could look at it as long as you want. You could tell it to do something. You could tell it to grow. You could tell it, and it would, it would not change. It would stay a seed. It would appear to not have any life to it, wouldn't it? But all of a sudden, you put that seed in the environment in which it was made to grow, and it's going to germinate. It's going to grow. And the way it grows will depend on how it's cared for. But the point is, if you go back and try to reclaim your seed, guess what? It's gone. You're not ever going to get a seed again. Well, until it grows and produces more seed, which is the point. But uh, it's never going to go back to being a seed. And there's a biblical parallel here that's really important because the old has gone and the new has come. What Jesus was talking about ought to happen in the life of of those who follow him is precisely the thing that Paul's talking about, the transformation that happens when he talked about that in 2 Corinthians 5. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That's the picture. The old has died. The old is gone. You can't go back and reclaim it. It's gone. Sometimes we still try. Sometimes we still try to go back to being seeds. I don't understand why. Other than it's, it's the flesh, the battle of the flesh against the spirit. But it, we're never going to be that person again. We are new people in Christ. So really what we're looking for is, is an, a full understanding of what it means to have died to our old selves, to live in the new, in what God has made us to be in the power of his spirit. So how are we seeing that happen in our own lives? Where where are the places where we've not yet died to who we once were so that the life of Christ could be made powerfully manifest through us? Where are those places? And for some it might be, I think again, as a parent, I have to die to the, the plans I have for my kids. As, as parents, what do we want for our kids? Well, we want certain things for them, don't we? We want them to to have success in, in things. We want them to, to be educated and, and to, to have good career choices and, and family choices and all those things. We want that for them, but is that of utmost importance? Or if those things were to go the, by the wayside as my kids grew to be men and women who were fully committed to following Jesus wherever he would take them, is that more important? Am I willing to die to the other things that I hold for them as, as most valuable, if, if that's of utmost importance? The answer should be yes. For someone in a different season of life, it might be retirement. Are you willing to die to some of the, the things you wanted to do with your retirement time, recreation, to, to use some of those resources or that time to further the gospel in another way, to serve in a ministry in another way? Are we willing to die to the things that we want for ourselves so that Christ can do what he wants to make himself known through us? Because the, the reason we want to do this, the reason we're, why is it worth it to do this is right here, the last part of this text, death in the, the believing community leads to new life as well. That's why we go. That's why we set aside our own desires and our own preferences. We die to ourselves so that Christ could live through us. Because as we do that, new life is brought up around us. Again, as Tertullian had said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Seed planted that grows as it's spread, right? And, 
and, and they're going, in this case, to the very place that Jesus had told them to go next. They're going out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. They'd been here, clumped together long enough, and so he spreads them, and they go. We don't know why they stayed clumped together. Perhaps it was comfort. Perhaps it was the familiar, the things that can keep us from going. Whatever it was that had them in Jerusalem, God said enough. And in this case, it was the persecution that drove them out, but he sent them, and they went. They had a commission to fulfill, and so do we. And what is it? What's the commission that we're going to fulfill? This text in Acts 8 talks, begins talking about Philip, and we're going to see this in more depth next week. We'll look at what Philip was doing and what God was doing through him. But here's just the, the beginning of that snapshot. And Philip is another one of those seven men who'd been selected by the church in, in Acts 6 to serve along with Stephen. And we've turned now from Stephen's story to Philip's story. This is what he's going to be doing. But we see him going to Samaria. Okay, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the ends of the earth. We'll get there. But Samaria is the stopping off point on the way, right? So who are the Samaritans? Who, who are the people of Samaria? They were, uh, well, they're, they're Jewish half-breeds in a sense. They had been Jews who'd been part of that exile, who had intermarried with, with Gentiles and, and created a, a hybrid religious system that borrowed from the Torah, from the law, and brought in their own ideas. And it, it's syncretistic. It, it's, it's a combination of things. They had their own temple on their own temple mount. They did things their own way. But they weren't full-on Gentiles. They weren't total pagans. So... So that's the point. This is the stepping stone. We've not gone to the, the ends of the earth yet, but we're on the way. The gospel is moving out. And we're told that, that Philip proclaimed the gospel. He proclaimed the truth of Jesus, and the response was joy. The response was joy in this community of people in Samaria. This is the part that's maybe most challenging for us, maybe because it's so simple. Because I was looking at, what are they proclaiming? It says, it says in verse 4, that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That means they were announcing good news. That's it. So it wasn't just something for the really skilled spiritual leaders to do, to preach a sermon and have people come to Jesus. No, everyone was going and just telling good news. Just go tell some good news. Everybody needs some good news. We all need some good news. Just go tell some good news. And what's the good news? Jesus. Okay, we're good. That's it. That's all we got to do. And you're going to see people changed, and it's going to bring joy. <laughs> so let's go do it. Why do I say that's so challenging? I don't know. I think because we create so many things that keep it from happening. We, we, we add these little things that just weigh it down and make it harder than it has to be. Look, you've been saved from, from, from sin's weight, from its agony and its anguish and its punishment by Jesus to this hope eternal that Stephen experienced and that you will experience if you're in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? So just go tell somebody. <laughs> Let's go do that. Let's proclaim it. Let's live like we believe it. 
and one of the things that may, that may hinder that happening, if we wonder, why isn't that happening? I believe we go back to the, what we've been looking at throughout this text. could be because we've not died. If we've not died to ourselves first, we're far less effective in really believing and living and owning and proclaiming this good news. Because we still are holding on to something that we think we bring. When we've died to ourselves, we realize this is nothing that I do, nothing that I can do. It's all the work that God does through Jesus Christ in me. Then that's good news. So the so what? Is it evident that you've died to yourself so that Christ's new life could spring up through you? And is it evident within the context of us, of our entire church community? Is it clear? Have we died to to ourselves, to our comforts, the things that are familiar? They're, They're good. Nothing wrong with comfort. But when comfort stops us from stepping out where Christ is calling, where he's commissioning, that's where we need to die and allow his life to spring up through us, right? So again, we pray that that would happen, that even now as we all prepare to go out these doors, there may be something specific that you placed on our hearts. It may just be a general reminder. Oh, God, thank you for the grace that you've already bestowed on us, that we don't need to go out and perform to earn your favor now. We can go and freely just proclaim this this life-changing good news because we've received it. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And God, I pray that you would soften hard hearts. Even as we go and proclaim good news to people who don't necessarily want to hear it, soften their hearts to receive what we have to say. And help us to rejoice. Rejoice in our own lives at what you've given us and rejoice together at the work you continue to do. So as we're scattered, strengthen us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to stand. From Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.